Thank you, ladies, for sharing with us this morning. It is a blessing to be with you. It's a blessing to have you with us as well, and it is a privilege to be in the presence of the Lord as we come together today. I'm going to invite you, as we get started today, to turn to Acts chapter 2, so if you can, uh, you can already turn there. I think in your bulletins it says we're in Acts chapters 44 through 47. That is actually not correct. There are not 47 chapters in the book of Acts. However, we're going to read a few verses from Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll actually expand a little bit even on the 44 through 47 there. Uh, We're going to read verses 42 through 47. But uh, as we look at the purpose and the value of the church and redefining what church is supposed to be about, The logical place to start is the birthplace of the church, and that is found in the book of Acts, specifically in chapter 2. I'm going to warn you ahead of time as we look today that this passage addresses multiple issues, but we're only going to focus on one of them today. We're going to focus on fellowship and the natural and, yes, even the supernatural relationships that we are called into as children of God. Did you know that when you entered into the believing faith in Jesus Christ, you also entered into a relationship with him, a supernatural God who is over and in all things? What a privilege it is for each of us. We were created for fellowship, not only with God, but even with others uh, in our society. There were two ladies, Sophie and Shirley, elderly widows in a Florida adult community. They were curious about the latest arrival in their building, a quiet, nice-looking gentleman who kept to himself. Shirley said, Sophie, you know I'm shy. Why don't you go over to him at the pool and find out a little bit about him? He looks so lonely. Well, Sophie agreed, and later that day at the pool, she walked up to him and said, Excuse me, sir. I hope I'm not prying, but my friend and I were wondering why you look so lonely. He said, of course I'm lonely. I've spent the last 20 years in prison. You're kidding. What for? For killing my third wife? I strangled her. What happened to your second wife? I shot her. And if I may ask, what about your first wife? We had a fight and I pushed her off a bridge. Oh my, Sophie said. Then turning to her friend on the other side of the pool, she yells, You're never going to believe this, Shirley. He's single. (laughs) The truth is, God has created us for relationships. We were created in the image of God. And throughout the Bible, we see that God is interested in relationships with his people. From coming down and walking with Adam in the Garden of Eden, to traveling with the Jewish people in the wilderness for 40 years to all his calls to the nation of Israel through the prophets. We have a God who is relational and who has created us for relationships. They will not all be marital relationships, but we were created for relationships. And as we look at the forming of the church, From the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1 to the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, we see from the very beginning that the church, the physical expression of the body of Christ on this earth, has been a relational body. When you become a Christian and place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, 
you become part of this relationship, part of the family of God with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you ever feel like you're alone, you should know that you are not alone. First of all, God himself has promised his presence in your life. He has declared, I will never leave you nor forsake you, which means even when you feel alone, you're not really alone. There's someone there with you. But in addition to that, you have been invited into a family relationship, which means you should never have to go through anything alone, for you have the body of Christ that should be there to walk alongside you. Following Christ is much more than walking an aisle and saying a prayer. It is a lifetime relationship with the God of all creation and with all your fellow followers of Christ. So here in Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, the celebration of the harvest, and God brings a harvest of thousands of people. 3,000 people believe on the very first day, and they all become a part of the family of God. As I look at this chapter, this chapter is very much about the Holy Spirit being given to all those who would trust in the Lord. See, that's a part of the relationship. God is welcoming us into a relationship with him. And he says, basically, I will be there with you. I will fill you with my spirit. You will never have to walk alone. And as we are filled with the spirit, something should change within each of us. Because we receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in our life to change the way we live. As we see this story unfold in Acts chapter 2, what we see is a people that are being transformed into the image of God himself. The Spirit of God now dwells in them, and they cannot continue to live the same way that they lived before. Being a disciple of Jesus is not defined by praying a prayer but by a lifetime of following Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When we follow Christ, it can be seen in our life. Our witness is not just what we say, it is how we live. It is who we are. It is the way we love. Far too often we think, about witnessing being a memorized script of what we can say to someone else so that they will believe. But it does no good to talk to someone if your life doesn't back it up as well. We very much ought to be living the relationship. Here at the end of chapter of the chapter in verses 42 through 47, we find out how we should live as witnesses for Jesus Christ. I want to read this passage to you once more. It says this. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 44 for right now. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, I pray that you would take the word which was just read, and I pray that you would help us to apply it to our own hearts. Help us to live as those who truly know the fellowship of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
As we approach this passage, Peter has just finished his message that Jesus is the promised Messiah. I will tell you that this is a dramatic shift that has taken place even for Peter. If you go back to the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter is challenged on three occasions regarding whether he had been with Jesus. Each time, Peter emphatically denies that he had been with Jesus, that he even knew the man. Peter was afraid that he might be caught up in this frantic pursuit of injustice. He knew that Jesus had been arrested. He knew that it was likely that Jesus would be killed, and Peter didn't want the same fate. So Peter was afraid to speak the truth. The third time that he denies Christ, we're told that the rooster crowed and immediately Jesus and Peter get this image of them kind of making eye contact from across the courtyard. And we're told that Peter immediately realized what he had done and he went away and he wept bitterly because he was so ashamed of the fact that he had denied his Savior. Now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. And something dramatic has changed. Peter, as he proclaims the message, I know we're starting here in verse 42 or 44, but as we look here, Peter has already passionately proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah to all of these people. And as he has proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, he takes it a step further. He says, you are the ones who have had this Jesus killed. How could Peter go from being so cowardly and afraid to all of a sudden being so passionate and confident that he was willing to even confront the very people who cried out, crucify him? It was because Peter had experienced the Holy Spirit in his life. You see, the moment the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, it naturally causes a transformation to begin within you. See, God's presence changes everything. God's presence has been made available to every single one of us. As I share that with you, I want you to recognize that there is a common bond that each of us ought to have when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. Whether we're talking about Cheryl, we're talking about Tim, we're talking about Rhonda, whoever we're talking about, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, we ought to share a common bond. Because now we are filled with the Spirit of God. Every believer ought to have, when we have that common bond, a sense of commitment. It says here in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to three things. The apostles' teaching to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Again, I told you I'm not going to focus too much on the apostles' teaching today or the breaking of bread, although we will touch on those loosely. The primary focus here is going to be fellowship. But I want you to notice that this was not a random act or a casual act. They devoted themselves it is very sad that we live in an age where someone can be identified as a fine, upstanding Christian without being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We have far too many people in the church 
who would call themselves Christians but don't want to be disciples. What's the difference? There is no difference between a true Christian and a disciple. Because if the Holy Spirit, which we've already talked about, is given to each of us, if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, he will be changing you to become more like Christ. But there are many who call themselves Christians, but who aren't the least interested in following Christ, being like Christ, being a disciple. To those like that, I remind you of the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We always look at this passage with weddings. It's uh, the love chapter. Actually, that'd be 1 Corinthians 13. It is. Sorry, I'm messing that up. 2 Corinthians 13 does say this, though. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Jesus then reminds us in Matthew 7, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In the church, we should always look for others. In the church, we should always look for others to be in the body of Christ, to visit, to be a part of the church, to hear more about the claims of Christ. And we shouldn't expect those who are outside the church to act like disciples. But if we claim to be followers of Christ, then we should expect that we will live like a disciple. It is not logically possible for you to call yourself a Christian accurately and not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. For many people, going to church is sort of like going to Weight Watchers. The leader stands up and tells the total weight loss, and everyone is thrilled at what was accomplished, but many have nothing to do with how that weight loss has occurred because they have not really experienced it themselves. In the church, we celebrate what God is doing, but we need to look to be part of that work. Some of us, we just show up to the meeting and we're satisfied because we're there and glad to hear that other people are benefiting from it, but we're just observers. Well, it's time for us to be a part of the work. Instead of standing on the promises, we have people who are sitting on the premises, and it is time for the body of Christ to stand up and be the body of Christ. Notice, here is the word devoted. Luke does not use the word occasionally. This word means attending continually. This was not something we do every once in a while when we feel like it, when everything's good, but they were devoted it was their regular practice. Anyone can look like a Christian now and then. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut. You've all heard the phrase every once in a while. We can show up to church and put on a good front and look good to others. But these believers in the early church constantly lived out their faith. It was a lifestyle for them. 
we talk about a common bond, these were individuals who were all committed to the same thing. And notice it says they devoted themselves. This was a choice that they made for themselves. It wasn't that mom and dad told them, this is who you're going to be. This is what you're going to do. These were individuals who were making a choice for themselves. They devoted themselves. They didn't do it out of obligation or necessity. They weren't forced to live this way. If anything, the culture would have been pushing them away from this. This was a choice that they made for themselves. It's kind of like when we give the offering. There are surely some who will give because they feel obligated to do so. Yet there will be others who will give because they want to, because they realize that what they're doing is a privilege. It is an opportunity to do something bigger than themselves. It is a heart issue. Consider the words of Philippians 2.13 from the New Living Translation. It says, for God is working in you giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. So God gives Christians the desire to be disciples. And God gives us the power to make the changes to be like Christ. I told you earlier today that I'd be talking primarily about fellowship, and I certainly will be more direct about that in a moment But I don't want you to miss out on the fact that I've already been talking about fellowship. I know we're talking about being devoted to this thing, but you see, being devoted to change and being devoted to Christ was never intended to be something that we do all alone. We grow together. We're all familiar probably with a passage that says, iron does what? Sharpens iron. And certainly this is true. When true fellowship takes place, we have the privilege of helping each other to become more like him. You shouldn't have to do that by yourself. You shouldn't have to be on an island. In fact, we specifically see that this new church was devoted specifically to fellowship. They are committed not just to hearing the truth, Not just to remembering the sacrifice, but to one another. This word for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And I'm sure most of you have probably heard it before. The simple way to think about this is two fellows in the same ship. Fellowship. But it probably doesn't go far enough. This isn't just about proximity. Being in the same neighborhood as someone else. The way I would like to define fellowship is being as committed to one another as we are to Christ. Now that may be hard to grasp, maybe it even exaggerates a little bit, but this is not about feeling, this is about action. You may not feel close to a brother or sister, but you can still choose to be there for them regardless of what they are going through. You can live in a way that shows them that you are committed to them. Scripture has a lot to say about how we are to relate to one another. Just like a body, when you stub your toe, your mouth responds. So in the body of Christ, when one has a need, we should all be concerned. 
We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those who weep. Please do not minimize what I am talking about here. I think sometimes we have minimized fellowship to maybe that brief little moment in the service we call it the time of fellowship where you shake someone's hand and you feel good about each other. Everybody smiles and everybody looks good because it's Sunday morning and we're supposed to look good on Sunday morning. But fellowship is about so much more than just shaking hands and exchanging pleasantries. Those in the body of Christ ought to develop a common burden for each other. It's easy to share life with one another when everything is perfect, when everything is going the way we want it to go. But what about when we are hurting or when our friends are hurting? We need to be there for each other in those moments as well. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul uses the term fellowship to describe our relationship with Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So this fellowship is a partnership, a working together. In the same way that we have fellowship with Christ, we share fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. That's why Paul goes on in the next verse to say, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You see, when we live in fellowship, we won't have conflict and contention and disharmony. Now, some of you are already sitting here thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you can still disagree with an individual and choose not to be disagreeable. You may not see things the exact same way that everybody else in the room sees them. You may have an opinion that is different from someone else, but can you still be one united in the body of Christ? Absolutely. We live in a culture that has taught us that if you disagree with me, you must not like me. You must be intolerant of me. But the truth is, those in the body of Christ, we may disagree on various things, but we can still choose to be united by Christ and his spirit's presence in our lives. We will work through our differences in the power of the spirit of God and maintain our unity and oneness. Now, I'm aware that there's no such thing as a perfect church. I'm also aware that some churches are better at this fellowship thing than other churches. But a good way to look at this is internally as opposed to externally. It's a lot easier us to look externally, identifying how others haven't been very good at fellowship. But maybe we need to look within. In October 1993, the New York Times told the story of a lady named Adele Gabori from Worcester, Massachusetts. It can never be said that Adele Gabori's neighbors were less than responsible. When her front lawn grew hip-high, they had a local boy mow it down. When her pipes froze and burst, they had the water turned off. When the mail spilled out the front door, they called the police. The only thing they didn't do was check to see if she was alive. She wasn't. Police climbed her crumbling brick stoop, broke in the side door of her little blue house, and found that they believe 
what they believe to be the 73-year-old woman's skeletal remains sunk in a five-foot-high pile of trash where they had apparently lain perhaps for as long as four years. Eileen Dugan, 70, once a close friend of Gabori's, whose house is less than 20 feet from the dead woman's home, said, It's not really a very friendly neighborhood. I'm as much to blame as anyone. She was alone and needed someone to talk to, but I was working two jobs and I was sick of her coming over at all hours. Eventually, I stopped answering the door. Nobody was out there for Adele Gabori. Who are you there for? Who is there for you? As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to have a common concern for one another. Well, there's one more thing that we need to share in common. In our passage, we see it was their meeting place. They were devoted to each other and met regularly in the temple. In our case, it would be the church. I've heard people say that I don't really need to go to church to be a Christian, and I will loosely agree with that sentiment. It is possible that an individual is unable to physically get to a church, and their salvation is certainly not dependent upon that ability. However, let's go back to the heart for just a moment. You do what you want to do. If there's a sporting event and you want to be there, you'll get there. If there's a festival or a family gathering that is important to you, you will do what you need to do in order to get there. Even if you need to be at your job on Monday morning, I know we'll say, I hate my job. I don't even want to go to my job. But you like the paycheck. If you need to be at your job on Monday morning, if you are devoted to that job, you will find a way to get there. Well, I may not have to go to church to be a Christian, but I want to be with the body of Christ. We were talking this morning. I'm going to wrap my mom out here just for a moment. She sent me a message this morning, said, I'm running late but I'm still coming. Now, you have no idea how significant that text was. Growing up, I don't believe we were ever late to anything. My mom operated on the idea that if you showed up less than 30 minutes early, you were late. You had to be there not only on time, but you had to be there early. I can remember on one occasion, we had an accident on our way to church. It was actually as we were pulling out of the parking lot, someone else backed into us. And I remember we were on our way to church, but now we had to wait because the police had to come and they had to do all this stuff. Well, by the time we get to the church, the people in the church are in a panic because they are never late. We never miss church. It wasn't an option for us growing up. Now, understand this. I'm not telling you you got to be here 30 minutes early, although that's not a bad thing. But I love the fact that we were so much a part of the church that our absence caused other people to fear. Because the reality is my mom had made it a priority to be in church because it was where she wanted to be, not just because that was where she had to be. We do the things 
that we want to do. I crave relationship with those who are running this race alongside me. I, as a pastor, need you in fellowship along this journey. We are a team. I know sometimes I'm the one who stands up here and it seems like I'm the one who's pointing everyone else. But the truth is, I need you as much as you need me. We are a team. We do this together. Because of that, I am going to be here as long as it is physically possible. Not because I get paid to be here, but because it is important to me. And it ought to be important to all of us as well. We need each other as the body of Christ. Now we'll add one other thought to this. In the case of the New Testament church, they did not only meet in the temple. Actually, the passage that we read earlier says that they also broke bread together regularly in each other's homes. We're not going to focus on the breaking bread. We know that that's really not just about eating, but remembering the sacrifice of Christ. But this also identifies the fact that they shared life with each other. Not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday after the church service was over, they all went to whatever restaurant it is that they go to eat at, but they shared life together throughout the week. Let me ask you this real quick. Who are you sharing life with? Again, not just on Sunday morning. When you have the opportunity to fellowship, to love on one another, to be there for individuals, for their kids, their grandkids, to be with other people. Who are you choosing to share life with? I'm not just talking about your spouse, because that's the easy one. I share my life with Linda. Well, yeah, I'm supposed to do that. I'm talking about other people as well. Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 25, shares with us the incredible value of these relationships. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. In these relationships, we ought to be spurring one another on specifically toward love and good deeds. Our fellowship ought to encourage other people so that they will walk even more like Christ than if we were not a part of those relationships. Now, let let me just caution you for a moment. We're not just talking about your presence in their lives. It's good that you're present. You ever been around someone, though, who is, like, super negative? Like, everything that comes from their mouth is a complaint. You see bitterness, and after a while, you see them coming, and you think, uh, I'm going this way. Sometimes we can become a stumbling block to other people, but here's the thing. When the Spirit of God dwells in you, there is something incredibly positive that ought to flow out of you. So as we come together and the Spirit of God dwells in us because we're in fellowship with God as well, as we come together, that same Spirit ought to be what flows out of us 
providing opportunity for us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We need to be people who reflect the Spirit of God continually. We get to push each other along when we need it, because you know what? Sometimes we do need someone to push us along. We get to love each other in the good times and the bad times, continually being there for one another. We get to do good deeds together. We get to encourage each other. And I love the way this passage ends. All the more as you see the day approaching. You see, as the day of Christ's return approaches, we will have plenty of naysayers. There will be plenty of people who will try to stand in the way of those who will stand confidently for Christ. We're going to need each other as the day approaches. You may look today and think, man, there are incredible challenges that the Christian church faces today. And I would say that you are correct. But as the day approaches, it's not going to get any easier. And we're going to need each other so that we do not feel as though we stand alone. I was talking this past week, we were talking about some football issues. And I've shared with you before, but I was on a good football team in high school. My junior year, I think we were undefeated. Uh, we were we were very actually I know we were undefeated. I think the average uh, difference between our team and the other team was somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty three to seven. Uh, we just blew teams out every single game. It was actually almost not even fun. It was fun, truthfully. But anyways, we would walk into the stadiums prior to the game, and as we would walk into the stadiums, we would walk in in groups of two. And you would hold hands with the guy beside you. Now, this was in an era where people could yell out insults and you didn't worry about being politically correct. We were called every name possible that refers to someone who might be homosexual. Because you had guys holding hands walking in. But you know what? When you beat everybody 60-something to 7, usually nobody's talking afterwards. <laughs> Here's the thing, the symbol of us walking in together holding hands was identifying the fact that as we walked in, this was not about me winning the game, this is about us doing it together. Let me suggest to you that the body of Christ, when it is most effective, it is when we do it together. I need you to be faithful to the fellowship of Christ and the church. You need me to do that. You need the people sitting beside you to do that. We all need each other. Will you fulfill your role in that? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, well, we are grateful for the example of the New Testament church, a church that was fully devoted not only to you, but to one another. I pray that you would help us as today's church to be just as devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. May we be a church that truly reflects what you envisioned the church being when you created it. Help us to be faithful 
to look to the needs of others, to constantly be aware that it's not just about us. Help us to continually look at the brokenness of others and ask the question, how can I be the hands and feet of Jesus in their lives? Help us when we are in those moments of needs to recognize that there are others who will come alongside us to support and to encourage us. Help us to depend on you and the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My prayer is that we will be the church that we were intended to be. And clearly God's word instructs us what the church is supposed to look like. Fellowship is a part of that. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you can, come back next week and we'll look at another aspect of us being the church. We are dismissed.